I've reported other people's stories for a long time, confronting people in power. But behind this broadcast voice, I've hidden my greatest secret. I was in an abusive marriage. It lasted a year, but it changed my life. Part of me always blamed myself for what happened, and I've lived with the shame. So many of us live like this. It's time we change that. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Welcome to Paradise is my story. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. You're listening to White Coat Black Art in the Summer. This is an encore of an episode that aired in May 2022. From residential schools to missing and murdered Indigenous women, we've heard a lot lately about Canada's mistreatment of First Nations, Indigenous, Inuit, and Métis people. There's another dark chapter that needs to be part of that reckoning that you may not have heard much about. It's one I care about deeply because it involves my surgical colleagues. An untold number of Indigenous women in Canada have had tubal ligation and other surgical procedures that made it so these women could not have kids. Women say they were coerced and even forced to be sterilized. It's a notorious legacy of the history of medicine in Canada, and a 2021 report by the Senate Committee on Human Rights says in some parts of the country, it's still going on. What's the weather like today in Edmonton? (laughs) Well, it's overcast, cool, but we definitely have spring here. The grass is green and things are looking up. The woman you're about to meet is waging a very public campaign to end the coerced and forced sterilization of First Nations, Indigenous, Inuit, and Métis women. Hi, my name is Morningstar Macrity. I'm coming to you from Edmonton, Alberta, Treaty 6 territory. I am from Athabasca, Chippewan First Nation, Treaty 8 territory, Fort Chippewan, Alberta. I grew up in Edmonton, and I grew up in the north. You're also a book author. I am. I'm the author of recently published Sacred Bundles Unborn. Previous to that, Morning Star, A Warrior Spirit, and Fort Chippewan Homecoming. In her seventh month of pregnancy, Morning Star had cramping and spotting and went to a hospital in Saskatoon and had a C-section. She was 14 years old. What Morning Star didn't know is that the surgeon also took out her left ovary and fallopian tube without her knowledge or consent. It was two decades before she found out. Morningstar Mercury, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to be speaking with you, and I know this is a very difficult subject. And in this book, you talk about coerced or forced sterilization. I wanted to ask you, what is your personal connection with coerced sterilization? As a survivor of forced sterilization when I was 14 years old and seven months pregnant, I knew that lending my voice to my experience as a survivor was critical and important, not only for my own process, important though to let other survivors know that they can come forward, they are not alone, we stand in solidarity with them. I knew that I would be asked exactly what is it that happened to me. Yes. To which I can respond, read the book. Hmm. It provides details in terms of the uh, horrific trauma that I endured 
I struggled with depression and PTSD to the degree that I wasn't even aware of until I was in my 50s, the severity of it. Of course, when I was triggered as a result of listening to an interview on CBC by another survivor who was disclosing her story of sterilization in Saskatchewan, it triggered me, and I speak to it in the book. Uh, my chapter is, is titled Mental Health, Living Within Systemic Racism. And I want to say that trigger warning, intergenerational trauma, rape, sexual exploitation, and sterilization, that is the title of my chapter. You said that you didn't know what had happened at the age of 14. When did you learn what had happened to you and how? I was in my mid-30s. I was in a relationship and have always wanted to have more children. I went to see a specialist, a gynecologist. And he was incredibly supportive, uh, very endearing, very, very compassionate. When he did his examination of me via scope, he was absolutely outraged and in shock. And essentially, he said in all of his medical history, he has never seen anything like this in terms of the damage to my tissue damage in my uterus, that I didn't have a left ovary or fallopian tube. And as a result of a, an eptopic pregnancy when I was 19, which I obviously lost the baby and flatlined, was revived, I wasn't aware to the extent of the damage. The mutilation is what he referred to it as. He said it was an effing mutilation and that he's never seen scar tissue damage to the severity that he observed in me. And therefore, I was not a candidate for in vitro. Needless to say, that triggered me and my system just shuts down when triggered with that trauma because when this happened to me at Saskatoon City Hospital in Saskatchewan, when I was released from the hospital, I went into a catatonic state and had a nervous breakdown. Six months or so after this mutilation was my first attempt at taking my life. So the trauma that I had compartmentalized in my 50s came to the forefront and that was when the PTSD escalated to a degree that I'd never experienced in my life. So I had to begin to deal with it. Fortunately, and we're so blessed, I mean, our anatomy, our brain, our, our bodies, our spirits are just brilliant in terms of our survival mechanism. How do you feel now as you reflect back on that? You said you were struck silent and that it was years before you were able to even begin to process it. You said you compartmentalized yourself. I feel very grounded in my own empowerment and in the steps that I've taken to ensure that I've done everything humanly possible as far as quote-unquote healing is concerned because it took literally a lifetime to recognize what was done onto me was, first of all, not my fault. This kind of medical violence, if you will, along with MMIW and just being on this side of being a visibly Indigenous woman, 
when so much of that violent, biased, racist projection is put out there and having to respond to that literally a whole life. This was this was something different, though. I had no idea to the degree of how it defined my personhood as a woman. So a couple of things happened. I did everything I could to be as kind and gentle and as compassionate as I possibly could be to the 14-year-old child that I was when this happened. Mm, yes. And as a woman, I was enraged. I was writing my chapter when the first 215 children were found in Kamloops, and at the time I lived in Penticton, B.C. The trauma, I was, I was down for six weeks because generationally, of course, obviously not only triggering my trauma, if you will, I thought about my mom, my mm-hmm. late mom. I thought about my late Granny Annie. So generational trauma encapsulates generations. I understood at that point, that was a defining point for me, I understood how important it is for me to, as much as one is humanly capable of, to process this trauma so not to pass it down, to empower myself with the reality that this was, this is systemic. This is Canadian yes. history. This yeah. is me living the reality of being an Indigenous woman in Canada in 2022. And then I looked at my mom, maternal side of my family. There were three or four generations in residential school. Um, paternally, it was the same thing. My late Granny Annie had, I think, 14 children. Four survived our history. The majority of her children were in the Charles Campbell Indian Hospital here in Edmonton. She spent the majority of her life in Edmonton from Fort Chipewyan, obviously wanting to be near her children. And God only knows what was done to them in this Indian Hospital as we are aware that there were sterilizations in Indian hospitals, experimentation on Indigenous children, I believe with everything in me that my late Granny Annie, back then in her life, had to absolutely be present in body to advocate for the lives of her children. My mom, my late mom, she had uh, seven daughters, There were efforts to have us abducted via the scoop. And my late mom is one of the strongest, feistiest fighters I know. She went to all of the homes that we were placed in, literally physically removed us, and we were sent back, thank God, to our granny and uh, Annie and my late grandpa, Jonas, and Fort Chipwan. So this generational um, trauma is real, and when triggered today, this is what I'm processing. It's not only my experience, and I can assure you that sterilization of Indigenous women, men, girls and boys, 
in Indian hospitals and residential schools occurred, and therefore we will never accurately determine the thousands that this happened to. Now, that's easy enough to refer to historically. However, in 2022, as I give you this interview and talk with you today, it's occurring somewhere in Coerced Canada. sterilization? Correct. Because it is not criminalized. Can you say more about that? Well, I can say this. I um, read an article the other morning, as I often do, having my morning coffee, as I'm sure we all do. I read an article on how the Canadian astronauts, because of a legislation that was just passed, are no longer able to commit crimes in space. I thought, wonderful. Yet, as I, as I speak to you today, forced or coerced sterilization in Canada is not criminalized. When I go to my health care, whether it's a hospital or otherwise, I'm aware that I will be racially profiled as a woman that is pregnant and about to go into labor and deliver her baby, the birth alert is put in place. And it's we're told that doesn't exist anymore, but we all know uh, that that's not the case. So the racial profiling of Indigenous peoples will lead and has led to our death. And those birth alerts are set off based on the biased and racist stereotypes of practitioners in the healthcare system. That woman then becomes vulnerable to the system apprehending her children, possibly her baby, and the opportunity is therefore justified in some practitioner's mind that it's okay to either have forcefully or coerce this Indigenous woman into being sterilized without consent, oftentimes, or coerced consent, which is not consent. This is happening right now, 2022, because it is not criminalized in Canada. We'll be right back. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, a feature interview with Morningstar Mercury, an actor, poet, author, storyteller, and survivor of what she calls a forced sterilization at the age of 14. Her 2021 book, Sacred Bundles Unborn, gives voice to women who have come forward with stories of coerced and forced sterilization. A report last year by the Senate Committee on Human Rights found that the practice is still happening, with cases reported as recently as 2019. The committee found that cases are both underreported and underestimated. Earlier this month, that same Senate committee heard directly from survivors of coerced sterilization. If it's still happening in Canada, it means that there are gynecologists who are doing it. I wanted to ask Morningstar about that. 
I think it would be hard to get inside the heads of of a surgeon who does this. But have you thought about it? What would motivate them to carry out a coerced sterilization in 2022, do you think? I find the word racism to be interesting when, in fact, it is more than racism systemically. Mm. It is violence. It is yes. um, to the point that it's perpetuated to to our demise and to our to the death of many women. So to get into the psyche of any doctor, surgeon, practitioner, because there are those that are witnessing this and remaining silent. Yes. It is incomprehensible, first of all, as a human being, to imagine that people can not only witness this, but condone it by virtue of silence. Because in essence, when he or she sterilizes an Indigenous woman, based on his own racial profiling and bias and virtually hate, hate is appropriate, the word hate, because it is indicative of the act, which is violence. Ultimately, what ends up happening is he is taking it upon himself or herself to make this life-altering decision as to whether or not a woman can conceive, therefore ending her lineage. That's fairly convenient if you ask me. It is today's antidote in 2022 to deal with, quote-unquote, the Indian problem, which is what residential schools were established Mm. for. Beat the Indian out of the child. Well, now we have in 2022 the most inhumane torture conceivable. Imagine, if you will, let's say any woman goes to the hospital pregnant with her family, her husband by her side, the last thing that any Canadian woman is going to have to worry about is whether or not the doctor is going to force or coerce her into being sterilized. That is what Morningstar sees when she looks at the practice of coerced and forced sterilization as an outsider looking in. I wanted to get the perspective of a doctor on the inside. Dr. Anjali Malhotra is the First Nations Health Authority Medical Director for Women's Health in BC. I know it's an uncomfortable subject, but what sorts of biases do you think contribute to the potential for coerced sterilizations? Absolutely. Racism being the main piece here that we're talking about. And we know racism exists in our healthcare system, but also this idea that, and it's specific to Indigenous women, that providers may believe they are doing best for this family. However, their bias of what a family would look like and what that picture should be seeps in to making care decisions for someone rather than with someone. Who decides what a family looks like and and how do you shift it back to the patient having control? Well, the patient should decide what their family will look like. They are the ultimate boss of their care. And it's important for us to remember that whatever biases are within our system or within ourselves need to be addressed and not passed on to our patients. And that is cultural humility. 
So once we start reflecting on our own biases and the biases of the system in which we work, over time, we will create a culturally safe system. But we need to do that process. We need to ensure that we are reflecting on our biases. And everyone needs to take part in that process. I think it's pretty astonishing that in 2022, um, that somebody could decide uh, for the patient, not being the patient themselves, that uh, their lives would be better, that things would be better for them if they had uh, a sterilization. Do you agree? Exactly. I absolutely do. And it is based on the historical piece, an ongoing piece of racism in our healthcare system. We had sexual sterilization acts, eugenics boards, Indian hospitals with medical experimentation. We now need to reflect upon how to make change, and it needs to be now. How optimistic are you that that change can take place? Well, I'll work my hardest, and so will many other allies, and so I'm very hopeful that it will. Dr. Malhotra is working within the healthcare system to reduce the risk of coerced sterilization by putting Indigenous women on more of a level playing field with healthcare providers, by making it less likely that a woman might have a tubal ligation and other sterilization procedures when they're sedated or under duress. To Morningstar Mercury, these are welcome developments. But she's still calling for sterilizations that are coerced or forced to be criminalized so that they can't happen to other women. You wanted to have more children. I absolutely did. I am maternal to the core. I love I love children, puppies, and old people. <laughs> Put me in the company of any of those, and I light up. I am absolutely, um, have definitely been impacted by what happened to me. I absolutely wanted more children. My marriage ended. Uh, I never remarried. Any engagement that I was in ended because of my inability to conceive. For the longest time as an adult, my womanhood. I'm sorry. It's just, how does one come to terms with another human being making the decision as to whether or not she, her human right to conceive and have children that one individual can say no? How is that possible? That that decision by some doctor, some practitioner, and the witnesses can agree on because I'm brown, I'm indigenous. I'm trying to describe what is indescribable mm. and incomprehensible. Yes. And is jolting to the consciousness. Yes. Uh, this conversation is not an easy conversation. No. And it is literally a blow, a blunt blow to the consciousness and I might say the spirit of any human being to fathom or even imagine that this is happening in 2022 to Indigenous, Métis, and Inuit women and women of color in Canada because it's not criminalized. They're able to do this with impunity, without accountability, in the year 2022. This is such a difficult journey. Could you share how an Indigenous story keeps you going? There was one evening 
I was in the depths of my despair, having been triggered. So I did what I naturally do today. I lit my smudge, my sweet grass, my sage, my fungus, my cedar, and I prayed. I talked to my granny Annie and I said, Granny, how did you do it? You lost nine children in the Charles Campbell Indian Hospital in Edmonton, Alberta. How did you do it? How did you do it, Mom? How did you endure what you had to go through? My granny and my mom's spirit said the same thing back to me. This is what a mother does for her children. She fights. She stands up. She advocates. And I'm, I said, well, I'm doing that. And my granny Annie said, and then when it was so hard for her, she would go into the bush and just be in her environment on the land. And I know my late grandpa Jonas, they comforted one another as much as they could while their children were legally apprehended and placed in the Holy Angels Mission in Fort Chippewan, and they could do nothing about it because it was law. The comfort I found in that meditation, in that prayer, if you will, made sense to me because it's what I do too. I go back to the land. I go sit by water. I allow my spirit, my heart, to be comforted by my environment that's natural. Suffice to say, I've spent quite a quite a number of years in my adult life and in the chair of uh, with a psychologist. I mean, that's a, there's a lot to process as an Indigenous person. It's one thing to grieve the loss of a, a child or a baby, and in my case, there were two. A woman never gets over that. It's another thing, quite entirely, to have to grieve the knowledge that this was done onto me without my consent. Taking that from a woman is heartbreaking, and that's saying it politely. It's just incomprehensible. Uh, our societies are matriarchal, and we are a matriarchal people. So that's what I draw on, and that's how I walk. Morning Star Mercury, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with me, and I really appreciate it. Since we aired this show, researchers at a Quebec university revealed at least 22 Indigenous women underwent forced sterilization in Quebec between 1980 and 2019. A number of proposed class action lawsuits have been started in five provinces. These could end up potentially involving thousands of Indigenous women. It's something we will continue to follow. That's our show this week. If you'd like to comment, email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Amina Zoffer with help from Stephanie Dubois and Jeff Goods. Our digital producer is Brandy Wikely, and our digital writer is Jonathan Orr. Technical operations were by Austin Pomeroy. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.